Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And it seems as if it's been forever since we were here last together in the salon. Uh, as you already know, if you've read the message that I posted on Facebook a few days back, I was uh, laid low by a really nasty virus a couple weeks ago, and to tell the truth, I'm still not back to 100%. Uh, it's actually the most sick I've been since I had pneumonia about five years ago, and while I never really felt as if I was going to die, I did get to the point where I actually didn't care if I did. Uh, it was a really nasty little bug, but now I'm on the mend and uh, slowly getting back to normal, or at least what's going to uh, be the new normal for me. You see, uh, spending all that time in bed, uh, not even caring to read, well, it gives one a chance to think a few things through. So, before I introduce today's program, I want to pass along a few of the things that I've been thinking about these past couple weeks. And what is this big announcement, you ask? Well, it really isn't all that big, but after the first few days of not logging on to the net and checking my email and the various social media inboxes, I began to experience a great deal of anxiety and stress, uh, well, just knowing how far behind I'd be once I finally got back online. And uh, then I began to hear uh, that Aldous Huxley soundbite that I played a few podcasts ago where he said that if we aren't careful, our machines were going to take over our lives and we would become slaves to our own machines. And suddenly I realized how true that is in my own, my own life. Uh, so then and there I decided to begin to detach myself from the tyranny of my own machines. And now I'm happy to report that I can go two or three days without even turning on my computer, let alone checking email. And that's when I realized that I'd gotten myself into uh, an interesting little paradox here. All my life I've wanted to be popular, and from time to time I halfway succeeded. But it's been here in the salon, through my hobby of podcasting, that I finally broke through to where I'm actually a lot more popular than is, <laughs> well, than is comfortable for me. So, uh, as dearly as I prize all of the wonderful Facebook mail, Twitter mail, LinkedIn mail, and all the other places I'm digitally attached to, well, in order to eliminate a huge amount of stress in my life, I'm giving them all up. Now, if you're a Facebook friend of mine, you already saw my notice that even though I have over 300 unread messages in my Facebook inbox, I'm no longer going to even click over to see who they're from. You see, uh, what happens is that I go out to Facebook or check email and I see a message from an old friend and so I read it and often answer it, but that leads me to seeing all of the other new messages and uh, one thing leads to another and before long I've spent two or three or four hours reading email. Now, don't get me wrong, it's uh, actually a great experience and the wonderful comments that come in, uh, well, they truly warm the cockles of my heart and make life worth living. But after several hours of doing this, I get so worn out that I often wind up uh, putting off working on the next podcast or working on my new book because, well, I'm just mentally wrung out. In the past, you know, it wasn't like that. I, I could work 15 hours a day and never seem fatigued, but now I wear out in only a few hours sitting here in front of this computer screen, and so I also gave that a lot of thought. 
Then the other day, I happened to catch my reflection in the mirror and was shocked to find that I hardly recognized myself. I realize how strange that sounds, but apparently when I shave in the morning and get ready for the day, I, I must not actually uh, be thinking about the image that's coming back to me. Uh, like most old people that I've spoken with about aging, on the inside I'm still a teenager, but suddenly I discovered that on the outside I'm actually over halfway through my 70th year, and uh, now for the first time ever, I'm finally experiencing the fact that I'm old really fucking old. <laughs> now, uh, don't get me wrong, uh, outside of this recent virus, I'm actually in much better shape than uh, many men my age. You know, I'm careful to eat only organic food, uh, almost all of which is grown within 50 miles of where I live, and I usually get exercise every day. So I feel quite certain that I'll exceed the life expectancy for an American male, but uh, here was a shocker for me when I checked out that uh, statistic. The average male in this country only lives to be 75.6 years old, which gives me only six more years. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you that that isn't nearly enough time for me to complete some of the projects that I've already begun, let alone uh, ones that I have on the drawing board. And uh, seeing as how I'm now the last of my birth family to still be alive, and after seeing so many of my contemporaries already fade off into the sunset, I've had to have a serious talk with myself in very realistic terms and come to some kind of conclusion about how I'm going to spend whatever time is left to me. Hopefully I'll have uh, at least another 10 good years in which to uh, accomplish uh, a few of the things that are important to me. Which at long last brings me to the point of this uh, little self-indulgent rant. I calculated that out of the working hours I can put in each day, if I continue to read email and the messages that are coming in from all the various sources, that I'll be giving up uh, almost three or four of those ten years just in correspondence. So uh, please don't think that I don't find your messages to be important. Uh, I know they are. But from now on, I am sorry to report, I'm no longer going to even be reading my email or any messages from other social media. Granted, I still have to deal with the web hosting companies where I post these podcasts, and of course, without the ongoing support I receive from our fellow saloners who either make direct donations or buy a copy of one of my books, well, these podcasts wouldn't be online. And uh, so I'll also still be dealing with uh, the financial matters online and uh, contacting our donors, things like that. But other than a few small things like that, I'm going to do my best to extract myself from the tyranny of my machines. Maybe uh, once my next book is finished, I'll be able to again join the world of email. But for now, the only way you're going to get my attention, I'm sorry to say, is through your comments on our notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog, which, uh, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And since I'm the only administrator for that site, and since each comment has to be personally approved, that means that I do read each one, and as you know, I also often add my own comments to them when there's a, a question asked. I'm, uh, I'm really sorry to have taken so much of your time with this, and particularly here just before a really fascinating interview. Uh, and I apologize up front for uh, taking your time with these introspective comments, but now that I think about it, uh, given the amazing story that we're about to hear, uh, maybe the title of this podcast should be Introspections of a Couple of People Who Actually Made It Through the 60s. <laughs> so uh, let's get on with the show. Now, today's program actually uh, 
is a result of a series of emails that Joanna Harcourt Smith and I began exchanging last year. As you are most likely aware already, Joanna was the main companion of Dr. Timothy Leary during the phase of his life after he escaped from prison, after he escaped from the U.S., and after he lived in Algeria as a guest, uh, so-called, of Eldridge Cleaver, where he was uh, leading the Black Panther government in exile. And so by the time Joanna and Timothy became connected, uh, the good Dr. Leary was already a worldwide legend. Uh, but then things got even more interesting. You see, uh, Joanna was with Leary when he was kidnapped in Afghanistan by the U.S. government and then returned to a California prison. And just as a little aside here, uh, in case you think that the state of California is in any way progressive or forward-looking, I should point out the fact that California spends five times as much of its tax money on its prisons than it does on its schools. So even on the West Coast, we live in a gulag that soon may be even more horrific than the Soviet gulags once were. But I digress once again. Now after this interview, I'll add a few more of my own comments about uh, those turbulent and exciting times. Uh, But one thing that I want to suggest before we listen to this interview is that you give some thought to something that uh, she says here in a few minutes about what it's like growing up as a child of the family who is in the upper stratosphere of the upper stratosphere of what is now called the 1%. I think that her comments uh, may give you a somewhat different idea of what the so-called 1% are actually like, particularly uh, about what they're afraid of. Now, the interview with Joanna that we're about to hear was conducted by her friend Hugh Ware, and as you'll hear, Hugh does a great job of contextualizing what was going on back in the 60s with what is going on right now on both the political and cultural fronts. And so I see this interview as not simply a history lesson, but also a warning that if we don't learn from history, we're going to be doomed to repeat it. So to our younger saloners, uh, particularly those who have written to me lamenting the fact that they weren't alive and active during the 60s, well, uh, in my opinion, what's underway right now is going to make the 60s uh, seem like the 50s. In other words, if we're going to be able to work our way out of the mess we're currently in, then it's important that we make some new mistakes as we go along and not simply make the same mistakes as uh, were made back in the so-called 60s. But enough of my chatter. Uh, Let's uh, get on with this fascinating interview with Joanna Harcourt Smith, uh, as conducted by Hugh Ware, specifically for us to listen to here in the Psychedelic Salon. I'd like to begin a conversation with Joanna Harcourt Smith uh, concerning her new book, Tripping the Bardo with Timothy Leary and uh, generally share in some of her marvelous experiences over the past many, many decades that uh, she has finally put into this amazing book that um, I once talked with her at length about. As uh, many of you know, Joanna is a, is a creator and a producer for a website, uh, www.futureprimitive.org, which is part of the Marion Institute. And her podcasts and interviews with authors, visionaries, and innovators from around the world have become really very well known. And her website gets lots of hits, like 70,000 hits per year. Um, She's written many articles and publications. Uh, She's given uh, writing workshops and has been into poetry. She's just an amazing woman, uh, born in Switzerland in 1946, um, has grown up... uh, 
three children and has three grandchildren. And Joanna, I really can't wait to talk about this book and your life experiences. But um, before I give a kind of a, we get into the book, um, I'd just like to say hi. <laughs> Hi, Hugh, and um, I'm happy to be here with you. I want to tell our listeners that um, I have chosen my close friend, Dr. Hugh Weir, to uh, share this conversation with me. Uh, He is a great animal lover and healer, and he lived intensely through the 60s and 70s. So, um, let's go, Hugh. Great. I think a little bit about some of your, you know, your ancient history and your genes and some of that incredibly interesting uh, drama of your mother and your past is... People have to know this to know about you. This is a part of you that really we've we've got to talk about. And I'd like you to go into that, but I'd also like you to, you know, just when you speak about the really in the 60s, the early 60s, when you got into the U.S. and what was happening, when you became aware of like Marlon Brando or the Stones, uh, of course, the Beatles and all the rock stuff. And and then, of course, the revolution and, and the spirit of all that and how that affected you and how that seduced you into coming to the United States and eventually meeting uh, Timothy Leary. Well, I think this is a great place to start, Hugh, because the way I'd like to, the threads that I'd like to follow through this conversation is the social and the political and uh, the, the personal, those three levels. And uh, it's in the, the 60s and 70s that um, I forgot who said it, but every life is a political life. The way that it began for me is that I grew up in a family that at this time we can use that phrase was not only part of the 1% but was part of the 0.1% and I want to say that the people who have the most money are the people who are the most afraid of not having money so I grew up in a family where I was treated like Cinderella because I was costly, uh, but yet people went to, my people went to the greatest designers and uh, we stayed in the the most luxury hotels, but yet I was treated like an inconvenience because I cost. So uh, that was a very interesting thing. And as I was growing up, I saw... The um, I saw the cruelty and the lack of feeling that exists in this zero zero one percent of the um, the population. And one day, when I was much older, I was speaking with somebody who told me this fabulous thing. I said, "You know, uh, in my childhood and in those circles." I never encountered compassion. If I ever encountered compassion, it was for a person who was serving these people. Um, 
And I wonder why that is. And this man said to me, well, you see, the very, very rich have to kill compassion in their children. Every child is born innately compassionate, but they have to kill compassion in their children so that they don't give it away. I mean, how could we own most of what is if we had compassion? So I grew up without any compassion, and um, 50s and 60s uh, told that I was supposed to look for the alpha man and that alpha man would provide for me. Well, this is uh, this brings up another um, incredible, important issue uh, that really kind of just started in the 60s but kind of got rolling more in the 70s, and that is women's liberation, which I'm sure you were one of the leaders of at the time and were very aware of, of, of all the gender uh, imbalances in your life everywhere you went um, especially socially um, especially from where you came from uh, from Europe but also anywhere you went in the world it was very similar and I think that people don't realize that the actual women's liberation movement began in the early 70s and it was a really really important movement that has affected all the politics of left and right very good question. I mean, I often speak with a woman who might be in her 40s or in her 30s and has no idea of where we came from so that they may have a choice. Now, they may have the choice to stay at home and dedicate their life to their children, but they also may have the choice to live independently in the world and uh, and uh, be a single mother or whatever it be. They don't realize, um, well, the price that we paid for uh, a certain kind of freedom to be available to women, at least in the Western world. I existed still in a time where I should be married in order to leave the home. So that is still happening in African countries. And in, I know the burden that it is to have been told that you should belong to a man so that you can leave home. I did that. But at the same time, I took the liberty, the freedom, the amazing the amazing freedom to have abortions. Uh, I suffered from them very much, but yet I feel proud that I lived at a time where I could make that decision and not create more abused children than it's necessary. Um, You said you encountered women's liberation. It's more like... I feel I've always been a free person inside, but it's been wonderful to live at a time where I have been able to let that freedom fly, where it's not necessary for me to submit to any man or any woman. And yes, we created that in a certain way. 
Yeah, wow. Well, let's, Joanna, let's move to when when and how did you meet Timothy Leary? Speaking of this archetypal man, um, tell us about how that happened. I believe it was in the early 70s, around 72. Um, will you tell us and start to tell us a little bit of the story, please? I'm dying to get into the story. Um, this book is just an incredible page turner, and I don't know if our interview will do it justice, but please, please, start begin the story a little. Well, I have to say that um, I finished Tripping the Bardo with Timothy Leary about four months ago, and uh, I just turned 66 three days ago, and I started reading this, writing this book um, when I was... 31 years old when Timothy Leary and I broke up because I was sure from that moment on that that story needs to be told. So going back to when I was 26 years old, I'm looking for the alpha male. I'm, but yet I'm a child of the 60s. And so my family tried to marry me to Nikki Hilton, of the Hilton Hotels, tried to marry me to uh, the Minister of Finance of Cuba, uh, tried to marry me into the Hunt family, which at the time was like the Coke family in Texas, tried to marry me to one of the Hunts. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. I was still enough of a non-feminist that I was willing to look for the great protector and um, and provider, but I wasn't willing to sell out to this kind of person. And I was very fortunate that in 1969, I took LSD. And um, that was a very big event for me because I'd come from this place of non-compassion. I'd come, I'd come from this place of false entitlement. I had come from this place where dignity was not something that was afforded easily to women. And so I'm in Washington, D.C., and I take my first LSD trip, and I'm totally terrified. I mean, because I don't know who I am. Uh, Today I know you can let go of who you are. You can let go of your ego if you have an ego. But if you don't have a healthy ego, you can't can't go through ego death. Uh, So I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I'm horrified. And I'm looking at my hands and my arms and I'm seeing the veins and I'm seeing the whole river system of my river vein system of my body. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid because I I, I can't accept the human being that I am. So all night I played uh, Bob Dylan's song in the early morning rain with a dollar in my hand uh, I'm cold and I'm lonely here on the ground and it was the way I felt and I listened to this song until at some point at dawn I went towards the window and I opened the window and I saw this tree 
and I felt that the tree saw me and I felt integrated and I felt whole not just as the me that I detested but as a part of that tree and as a part of all there is nothing to judge just a part of what is and I felt this exquisite peace come over me and then I could let the dawn and some people might be upset by what I say but let the exquisiteness of the coming down from an LSD trip humbled but not humiliated I could let that wash over me and feel grateful so that's the beginning of my search for Timothy Leary. So then I would hear the Moody Blues. I would listen to the Moody Blues a lot. And I would hear this song, Timothy Leary's dead, no, 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 no. A beautiful song. And I would wonder who that character was. And um, I had had such an unhappy childhood that the positive side of the unhappy childhood was that I wanted to understand what it was all what it's all about you know why are we here what is suffering um, what is beyond that and um, and I somehow I got this feeling that this Timothy Leary if he was sticking his neck out that far, that he was telling people to have the experience like I had in my first experience with LSD, if he was doing that, then perhaps he would have some answers for me. Also, I became aware that he was a, uh, one of the foremost psychologists in the world. And... Um, I thought he'd have spiritual answers, psychological answers, and um, also that by finding him, I would find myself in a social position that would feel comfortable to me. I would not be an outsider anymore. Or that he would make the outside acceptable. Yes? You want me to go on, or would you like yes. to? Yes, uh, <clears throat> please go on and tell um, tell you know when you met him and what was kind of happening in the background around the world, uh, not just the United States and Switzerland and Afghanistan and all these pla- exotic yeah. places that you went with him. But yeah, tell yeah. continue yeah. on, please. Yeah. So I'm uh, sitting uh, in Spain in this beautiful village. And um, I'm hearing the music of Woodstock. I'm listening to Woodstock. I'm reading the magazines. And I know that you people over there are creating a revolution. And that really touches my heart. I really want to be part of this revolution. I feel immediately that um, through the music I know that I am a part of you over there in your demonstrations 
in your dancing, in your music, in your philosophy of um, let it all hang out, of liberation. I'm with you. So the first time I went to the States was in 1969. Actually, that's where I was able to take LSD. And I tell in the book how this little European debutante arrived in Washington, D.C. on the day of the biggest moratorium um, demonstration. I mean, I'm fresh off the plane. I've never been to America. And I go to... um, Cap to the capital, and I go to the what's that big phallic symbol with the blinking eye? Uh, what's it called? The Washington Monument. Well, I go to the Washington Monument, and people are smoking dope and they're dancing, and there are three hundred thousand people on the street. And um, I tell how um, I got tear gassed, and I felt that was my baptism. You know, forget all other kinds of baptism. Here I'm, I am. I've arrived in the afternoon during this monumental demonstration. My eyes are stinging like crazy, and I am part of a generation on the move to really change everything, and I love it. <laughs> so um, it took a couple of years. I. I tell the story about how I worked as a DJ and I, I was able to become an ordinary person by working as a waitress. I was working as a waitress wearing Saint Laurent dresses. <laughs> it was a weird time of transformation. But I tell this story and I tell how, which I won't get into through uh, an amazing, of course, course of synchronicities Um, I find myself and some people will know the name I find myself in Diane von Furstenberg's apartment in New York and uh, this man who was an arms trafficker who had been my lover tells me that he owns Timothy Leary and I didn't know what that meant but what happened is that Timothy Leary had been convicted of zero zero possession of zero zero point one grams of marijuana and had been imprisoned on a five to ten year California conviction for possession, had been imprisoned, had escaped from prison aided by the weatherman, and had been able to escape the country with his wife Rosemary, had gone to Algeria to do the revolution with Eldridge Cleaver, who um, was, for those who don't remember the time, Eldridge Cleaver was a leader of the Black Panther movement, which was a big African-American liberation movement. Uh, so Timothy had escaped and had gone to be with Eldridge Cleaver, and then it moved on and was now living in Switzerland as a fugitive from American prison, from California prison. This man, basically this old friend of mine, was able to tell me where Timothy Leary was, and I didn't hesitate a moment. I went to Switzerland, 
and I called Timothy Leary and I finally got on the phone with him and I said I wanted to meet him and uh, he set an appointment for three days from there. I describe all of that in the book in detail and uh, if I may say so myself, it's very amusing because really I didn't know uh, I didn't know who Timothy Leary was. This Harvard professor, this uh, man who was older, much older than I was, I was 26, he was 53, uh, was an encouragement for the rebelliousness of our generation, almost like uh, someone of the next generation who gave their approval. I haven't even thought about it that way, but it was very interesting that uh, he was older than we were and we got his unconditional approval (laughs) for all the crazy things we were doing. I mean, I have to say that um, I, I, like many people of my generation, like you, Hugh, because I've heard you talk about it, uh, I always considered myself an explorer. And I always knew that by the time I was born in 1946, um, the geographical world had been explored. But it dawned on me and my generation that we had a great exploration to be involved in, and that was the exploration of the mind, of the heart, and how it is to to be human. So Timothy Leary, back to uh, back to him. Um, I'm really glad because I'm going to meet this man, and I know I'm going to fall in love with him. And uh, I know that he has answers for me. So since he did not initiate me to LSD, I I had. Six tabs of clear light, for those who don't know, those were tiny little transparent tabs of LSD tucked in my journal, in the pages of my journal. And uh, I was together with this fabulous rock and roll lover who, when I say rock and roll, he was um, an integral part of the uh, Stones' entourage and the Stones even wrote a song about him, Tommy the Tumbling Dice. So I'm with Tommy and uh, his kids and my kid, and uh, we show up for this appointment with Timothy Leary in a cafe in Switzerland. And as I sit down at the table with Timothy Leary, he looks at me and he says, you've come to free me. I just took the challenge right there and then. Somehow it didn't scare me. It didn't scare me because I had no idea what that meant. None. But the fact that this man could recognize me in the way that he did, I felt that on a on a sensual level. Because I've always been a catalyst. 
So it seemed that he knew me. And um, then he said something so strange. He said, and I've come to erase the memory of all these Middle Eastern mustachioed um, men who've taken advantage of you. And that was true too. I will not go into detail, but it's mentioned in the book. And that was true too. And so it was like there was this, you know, this connection, this extraordinary um, electric, electronic connection that happened right there and there. And so he invited us back to the house where he was living. And I have to say that as I got to that house, um, I had experienced practically no love in my life. And certainly not the kind of love uh, that is shared by a community of people. And that again is a social phenomenon that existed in the 60s mm-hmm. and that today uh, has grown and has spread groups of people, group consciousness of people that is um, that expresses love. So there were perhaps six or seven people at his house and I, I just felt this exquisite feeling of... Uh, a different kind of love than sexual love. I had no idea that that could happen. Um, it's not so much that people would be nice to each other. It was, it was just this experience of group awareness, group awareness of one another and group awareness of each other as one. And so I was enthralled. I was, I, I knew that I was in the presence of something I'd been looking for. And I didn't know if it originated with this man, but it was definitely there and then that I realized that love was much broader, like my encounter with the tree, that love was much broader than the sexual love that I had experienced. So that very night, uh, we took LSD, the whole group, together. And um, a few hours later, Timothy asked me if I wanted to go and have breakfast with him. And he had a yellow Porsche, 911 Targa. And uh, I got in the car with him, and I was really intensely tripping and so was he and um, he conveyed to me that he was a political outlaw that he was being tracked and like a hunted animal and that we were in a crucial time politically for the world, just like now. 
and that I should participate in his liberation because it would be my way to participate in a greater social liberation. And again, I had no idea what he meant. And uh, we went and we had a lovely breakfast. I couldn't touch the eggs. They looked like some sort of oozing sunshine or something. <laughs> but he ate voraciously. And, um, and then we admitted to each other that uh, we were each other's perfect love. I was in no state to question that. Uh, and I was in no state to ask um, questions about it. I just, I believed it. I believed it. And I believed that I had arrived where I wanted to be forever since I was a child. So um, after that, uh, I sent my boyfriend away. This described in more details. In, in, uh, and uh, sadly, I sent my child away because I knew this was going to be the roller coaster of roller coasters. I didn't know how, but I knew that. And um, so Timothy and I continued to take LSD every day. We drove around in the yellow Porsche. We went to uh, Austria uh, because he was to to make a, uh, a a film against drug addiction. Um, strange because another reason both of us liked each other very much is that we love to drink together. We love to get drunk. And um, we were taking cocaine and we were taking LSD and there he was making this anti-addiction film for this commune in in Vienna and I it was all it was all unbelievably paradoxical to me that's where that's where I mean I had lived paradox to the extreme because to be a child and to be abused and to be physically abused and to be sexually abused is the greatest paradox one can live but when I started to travel with Timothy Leary it was like turning up paradox to the max and um, then he says to me we should go to Afghanistan and by then I had drank water from the Ganges that his daughter brought back from India and contracted um, jaundice and hepatitis to the max and I was in no situation to argue with the decision to go to Afghanistan I didn't even know why we were going to go to Afghanistan, except that he said that there was a great hash dealer there, which you could see how that could be, who was going to provide for us and give us a beautiful life uh, 
and that the Americans would never get to uh, take him back to America because there was no extradition between Afghanistan and, uh, and the United States. So he said that um, we were going to live like uh, uh, poets on the beach <laughs> with flowers in our hair, making love day and night, and we'd have beautiful babies. And I thought, well, that's great. Let's go. So um, we get on the plane to Afghanistan, to uh, Kabul, Afghanistan. And uh, this is the crucial moment. Uh, I'm skipping over some amazing things that are told in the book. But as we exit the plane... He had, for some reason, he had his passport in the name of Timothy Leary. Uh, I'm not quite sure how that happened, because since he had traveled to Europe as an SKP on a false passport, I don't know who it was or how it was that he was in possession of his real passport. But we walked into the Kabul airport, and I'll never forget, as long as I live, this little man in a suit with a moustache came up to Timothy and snatched both our passports out of his hand. And Timothy turned to me and he said, I'm being returned to the United States. And I had no idea what that meant. And we went up to the, to the, to the passport control and uh, the Afghanis said, well, we can't let you into the country because you don't have any passports. Catch-22 or what? Or first extraordinary rendition, illegal, uh, no extradition papers, extraordinary rendition in the history of the United States. I still get really choked up when I think about that because we were then taken to um, an abandoned hotel in Kabul um, that was in ruins. We were locked up together in a room uh, with about 20 Afghani soldiers guarding the door. And uh, fear entered me. Fear entered me like only people who have been kidnapped by the United States government know. You cannot know that fear unless you are being kidnapped by the law outside the law. It's, again, rising paradox. It's a paradox. I mean, if you are being kidnapped by the law, outside the law, there is no recourse. None. You are now in total no man's land. So Timothy and I were left to rot in this horrible room with a mattress, with these Afghani soldiers guarding the door. The, there was a toilet, but it was unbelievably disgusting. We were interrogated. The interrogation didn't make any sense. I hadn't committed a crime anywhere, or officially hadn't committed a crime. 
other, having taken uh, what they call drugs. But I had never officially committed the crime or been arrested anywhere in the world. I had a raging hepatitis. And these men in, um, with German accents were interrogating us about things that were total nonsense. And all they gave us was chai, and which was a good thing because with the kind of hepatitis I had, I couldn't have eaten anything. And after three days they came and they said, um, get up, or oh, they confiscated our clothes. And after three days they came and they said, get up, you have been returned to the United States. And they escorted us to a plane, and as Timothy and I were walking up the, um, the steps to the plane, this man, uh, tanned with a beard, uh, said, um, I'm Terence Burke, uh, dopes the game, and I'm returning you to the United States. And there were three um, agents dressed in suits, and I could not make sense of what was going on. I could not. I mean, there was no way I could put any bad trip I ever had on any so-called drug could not measure up in any way to the absolute nonsense of what was going on. And, and the fear with that was absolutely, who are they? Where are they taking me? Why are they taking me? Um, so I sat with Timothy and he kept saying on the plane and he kept saying, fear not, it's all right. Uh, you know, it's not wonder that I remember every single minute of, the, of that. And um, they say LSD will blow your mind. Well, again, I'll say being kidnapped by the United States government will blow your mind in a way that... And uh, so it was a passenger plane, and um, it was going to Tehran first, which was interesting, but the Shah was still in power. And um, they, uh, they surrounded us so we wouldn't get off the plane at the first stop. And then they said the plane was going to Paris. So I wrote little pieces of paper on little pieces of paper. Uh, we are being kidnapped. Please uh, advise the police at uh, Paris airport when we disembark and uh, we're asking for proper extradition. And I dropped these little pieces of paper on the lap of people on the plane. I walked down the aisle. And about 10 minutes later, there was an announcement on the plane, and they said, for reasons, for technical reasons, this plane has been deviated. It will no longer land in Paris. Um, it will land in Frankfurt and arrangements were being made for people to be to fly to Paris. And the level of fear I felt just increased because it's unbelievable that 
government can have such power over you. Uh-huh. So uh, the plane landed in Frankfurt. Um, we were taken to a to a special lounge, and about fifteen to twenty agents joined the agents that uh, were already escorting us. And all the while, Timothy was telling me, you know, I'm a fugitive from prison, and uh, it suits them at this moment to do this. And uh, don't worry, it'll be all right. I mean, you know. How can it be all right in the twilight zone? I would have been better off in a flying saucer. You know, it would have been less scary to me, you know. And um, and the next day, uh, we were flown to London under heavy escort. Uh, I have an English passport, so in London they asked me if I wanted to um, stay. I said, no, I want to go with him. At that point, it was obvious to me that I was... Like I said, on the roller coaster of roller coasters, and I was going to do whatever it took to get this man out of prison. There wasn't a shadow of a doubt in me. I was going to come up on what was crushing me, whatever I needed to do. 26 years old, 100 pounds, 5 foot 2, I was going to come up against that thousand million pound gorilla that was trying to crush me and my man. You know, and so we got on a Pan Am flight. Pan, Pan Am for the younger ones doesn't exist anymore, but we got onto this 747 flight to California. I had never been to California. I did not understand what a Timothy Leary was. And at this point, I want to say very clearly because it's been. 40 years that some people have been saying that I sold him down the river, that I worked for the CIA. Um, I was nothing but a woman in love and who was used as a pawn to um, return this man to the United States. And a very interesting fact that I want to point out here is that we landed in the States two days before Nixon's second inauguration. I want to remind everybody that Richard Nixon ran on a law and order ticket. On the same day as we returned to the United States, a very, very, very famous gangster, was, whose name is Mayor Lansky, was returned to the United States from Cuba as well, kidnapped in the same way. Um, our return to the United States made the front pages of every newspaper in the world. Um, they used me as a pawn because it was a great image. You will see that image in the book. Timothy Leary and his paramour being returned to the United States. The plumbers, the Watergate plumbers, Gordon Liddy and his gang, were being charged that same week for the break-in at the Democratic Convention offices. And they were being charged the same week. And I know that this was engineered to hij hijack the front pages of the newspapers 
so that the, uh, the Gordon Lee diplomas would not make the front page. And I know that because later on in Timothy's lawyer's office, I saw a memo from Haldeman and Ehrlichman to their aides saying, find out the whereabouts of Timothy Leary and bring him back by all means, by any means. So um, Timothy Leary might have justifiably been um, brought back to the United States, but I was used as a pawn. And then the rumor was circulated that I had organized the kidnapping in Afghanistan so that it became a total fog. What, what happened, the extraordinary rendition, was completely hidden by a fog of disinformation. I'm going to turn it back to you, Hugh. Well, it all sounds so 60s with uh, all this, uh, so similar to so many of the assassinations, and it really strikes a chord to me about, you know, what is what is viable in the 60s in our lives today, and here we just, last week or the week before, was passed the new law that allows President Obama to arrest any American citizen at any time with just the suspicion that they're a terrorist and they can rendition them to any jail anywhere in the world they want. Now it's legal, Joanna. And, you know, what, like the 60s now and then is like this, it's, it was the, it's still the same. There's so many similarities politically uh, and socially between the 60s and now. And, and I think that it's really amazing that in the book that you contrast the, the the persona of Tim Leary and his the social phenomena that he was the crest of the wave that he was riding that he was often uh, kind of our champion surfboard master and uh, was a very you know very adequate uh, uh, spokesman for this this wave this movement this liberation wave that came in the sixties and unfortunately. Um, didn't uh, come to fullness, uh, but it's still happening, and as we've mentioned up to up till today. And before we go on into the the sordid uh, history of the of the prisons um, and the Gulag USA, um, I just kind of like to ask a couple of things. Um, did uh, did you do uh, mushrooms? Did you do peyote? Did you do other psychedelics? Um, I'm sure it was primarily LSD at the time, but were you? Did you ever have the opportunity to do other uh, psychedelics with with Timothy Leary at that time? Indeed, um, he and I smoked a lot of dope, and uh, for 49 days, this is how long I knew him before we landed in uh, LAX. For we were landed in LAX. Um, we did LSD every day for 49 days. That's why I called the book Tripping the Bardo with Timothy Leary. Uh, no, I didn't do other uh, substances with him. But during the three and a half years he was in prison, I was introduced to peyote and I was introduced to mushrooms. And... Um, I would consider these uh, substances great teachers 
And in my case, at the time, they were mostly teachers that deprogrammed me slowly from the arrogance that I had been taught. So they were very humbling teachers. And for that, I'm immensely grateful. Uh, another interest that I had that, that I didn't really understand, and maybe you could help clarify for me, I um, I want to get into some of the things that Alan Ginberg said when he bathmouthed you, and we'll specifically talk a little bit more about that. But why did Timothy Leary um, abandon his psychology, uh, his role as a psychologist, because at one point, as you mentioned earlier, he was an eminent psychologist, and he seemed to sort of abandon psychology, and that never was clear to me um, what that was about. Could you speak a little little bit about that? I think that um, as, and I was not with Timothy at the time, uh, as he became acquainted with LSD, as he became acquainted with suicidal he realized that um, what society lacked most of all, and especially after the two world wars, was a feeling and awareness of pleasure. That as long as we did not experience pleasure, as long as it was all suffering, we would continue to do horrifying things. So he became much more interested in uh, speaking to people about um, about feeling ecstasy than actually studying their own history. Now, let's not forget that Timothy Leary um, is one of the inventors of group therapy. Let's not forget that Timothy Leary's uh, test of personality uh, was used on him when he was incarcerated and uh, was used on prisoners all over the country for a very, very long time. Uh, His psychological testing is still used in many places. But I think that he, he wanted to do something really useful for humanity and that he realized that... Um, our greatest problem was our lack of pleasure, our lack of understanding of how beautiful and exquisite our world can be. So that's why he turned his emphasis. And also by studying um, Eastern uh, religions, Buddhism, remember it was the beginning of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Some of these people including Timothy, went to India and had very profound revelations. Uh, Timothy used to say, um, jump swiftly, swiftly from rock to rock before it sinks with courage and a smile. So if that's not the opposite of of psychology, (laughs) go ahead, smile. Yeah. Uh, beautiful, Joanna. Thank you. Um, now back to uh, an issue that I just want to clear up at once and for all here about um, some of the things Alan Ginsberg said and, and kind of your dilemma 
that actually did occur, your sort of Sophie's choice, this place where you were boxed in with, where the, the man that you loved was in, incarcerated and they were torturing and messing with your mind in despicable, just disgusting ways and your bodies. Um, and, you know, what was this, this horrible ordeal that the prison, that the Gulag USA that you experienced um, that began after you returned to L.A.? And I want to specify that um, I'm still taking a risk here. And, um, but if I wanted to be absolutely precise, I would say that my life today is dedicated to love because it's because it suits me. It's the most pleasurable feeling that I can share with people. And to go back to this notion of pleasure, uh, I want to feel pleasure. You know, can buy me love, but can create it, produce it, participate in it with every person every day, if possible. And then the second thing that's most important for me in my life is to tell this story. I mean, I am totally passionate and, 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 and dedicated to telling this story. Because, for one, uh, I want people to know what I went through and, and how it carved me, how it chiseled me, how fortunate I am that it chiseled me into who I am today. I'm glad to live with myself. But also in terms of the fact that I don't think it's well known enough what Timothy Leary went through for being called by the government an ideological trafficker. It wasn't the dope, and I'm still very emotional about this, it wasn't the dope, it wasn't the parties, it wasn't what it was was that Timothy Leary put out the message that we have the right to change our consciousness and that nobody has the right to mess with us if we want to change our consciousness. And I truly believe that up till that time, uh, only mystics and Eastern um, teachers and yogis and so on who change their consciousness, saints, whatever you want to call them. But now, because he had the courage to come forward and say, human beings have the right to change their consciousness, just like a lot of animals chew on leaves and certain things that change their consciousness, human, human animals and human beings have the right to change their consciousness. And it is unconscionable and absolutely wrong for any government or any person to stand in the way of someone choosing to change their consciousness. He had, he had the courage to say that. And uh, just like many people I know, I'm not the person I was programmed to be. 
And that's astonishing. And it's not told enough. I mean, we gather in small groups and we love each other and we appreciate the fact that um, our awareness has expanded from the place that we were programmed to be. But it's not spoken about enough and it will never be spoken enough about enough that um, our hearts and minds have expanded tremendously since the uh, 60s. So anyway, I was um, I was saying I want to tell this story and I want to go back to the, the political situation and thank you for remembering the detail about Sophie's Choice. And I want to remind people that Sophie's Choice was a film in which um, the woman played by Meryl Streep comes up to the Nazis and uh, she has her daughter and her son with her as she's taken into the camp. And um, this torturer says to her, you must choose between your daughter and your son, the seven-year-old and the eight-year-old. And she agonizes and she agonizes and she chooses the boy. And we are put into situations many times that are inhuman choices. Many, many of us. And what decision will you make when you are put in front of an inhuman choice? Are you going to say, I can't choose, I'm going to kill myself? Or... Are you going to go into a terrible schizophrenic bind that will make you make a choice that seems insane to everybody else? So this is what I experienced when when the paradox continued, let's put it that way, the extreme madness of paradox continued. I mean one is brought up to think that there is some justice in the world. Um, somehow, I mean, I'm sure even the cat over there thinks there is some justice. And um, But when I experienced the, the absolute madness of injustice of taking this Timothy Leary that I'd experienced as a kind, loving man, who had not killed anybody or hurt anybody or but had been convicted for smoking dope when I saw him being taken into the bowels of false prison into the most um, inhuman solitary confinement conditions no lights or lights all the time uh, stuck in the cell next to Charles Manson, who was threatening him. Um, no light of day, they call it the fourth tier below. No light of day. And I got to go to the visiting room and I witnessed that. And I wasn't like the other wives. I wasn't let through into the visiting room. I was stripped. I was cavity searched. I was mocked. I was mocked for my gender, I was mocked for my accent, I was mocked for being Timothy Leary's girlfriend or common-law wife. Wife, 
as he called me. I was searched by men, so in other words, I was sexually molested and abused. When I witnessed what they were doing to him and to me, uh, it never crossed my mind to abandon him. I mean, it, it. I had sex with other people because it was the sixties, and again, it was, it was, a, it was a relief for me uh, to have uh, to share desire with someone else and the relaxation of sex. But it never crossed my mind to abandon him. All I thought about day and night and day and night and day and night is how will I how will I get this man out of prison, this 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 gentleman, this gentleman out of the claws of the out of the terrible claws. I mean, I was followed, I was stopped. I was made to walk the line a million times. I, um, my phones were tapped. My, you know, um, why, why, you know? Um, because we were dangerous. We were very, very dangerous. But I want to say that so were you. You see. Every one of us was incredibly dangerous. And the seeds of this dangerousness is, is, are blossoming today. They're blossoming. Look at the Occupy movement. Look at all the beautiful people who live in their villages and communities. Look at how many people, whether, it's, whether they are not individuals in their own little piece of property growing food, and not accepting the, the, the tainted genetic food of the big corporations. When you yourself share the food that you grow with me, I mean, that's dangerous. So we were, we were dangerous, and we were tortured for being dangerous. And, and I was going to find a way to unlock that door. I was drunk, I was a drug addict, but this little tiny little person that I was was going to find a way to force that door open. He had legally uh, 106 years over his head between a federal sentence, the escape sentence, a sentence in California, and um, once the American prison system has you in their clutches, and they don't even, I mean, look at, look at Julian Assange. They only have a bracelet around his leg, and it's in England. But this, what is it? It's been over a year that this guy can go nowhere. Nowhere. Once the system has you in their clutches, there are no laws. So in other words, when you cross in to be captured by the law, you are outside the law. And I've never said this, but this is how it is. And this is how frightening it is. So, to answer your question, um, the way I look at it, Timothy Leary was a philosopher, or at least the way I'd known him. And, and I visited him almost 
every single day. They kept moving him from one prison to the next because uh, they didn't want him to have an influence in the prison. Uh, to me, Timothy Leary was a philosopher, uh, similar to Socrates and others. And um, what I couldn't understand is why couldn't he explain to the government that he was not a dope dealer, that he was not, but that he was a philosopher, and that philosophers are important in the community, in a community that we we need to have philosophers. But of course, I didn't understand that that was even more dangerous. That him being a philosopher was even more dangerous to them than whether he was a dope dealer or whether he had influenced the, the dope dealing in California for the last hundred years, it was much more dangerous than he was a philosopher. But it was um, suggested to him that if he um, turned on his friends in the counterculture, in other words, if he cooperated with state and federal authorities, he might be able to get out of prison. Get out of prison. Get out of this unbelievable nightmare. That's why I talked about Sophie's choice. Uh, the, the choice that was offered was an inhuman choice. The man had been in prison for two and a half years in the most horrendous conditions. Now, if you ask me and for these archives, I will say to you that I also think that they tampered with his mind. Whether it was chemical lobotomy or any other kind, or simply torture, or simply the personality that he used to have, the spirituality that he used to have, scared to death out of him. Uh, I don't know the details, but I know that I saw this man changing enormously, and I know that when he got out, he wasn't the person. He did not have this spiritual loving atmosphere that I recognized when I met him. We know now that they can get to you. They can get to you. And there were times where he told me, I'm being drugged, I'm being drugged, I'm being drugged. And his eyes were so red, and he didn't mean the drugs that are in all the prisons that you can probably get easier than even outside. But he would tell me I'm being drugged. And he was sluggish and red-eyed, and he was in bad shape. So this choice was offered to him, and after two and a half years, he asked me to send a telegram to the FBI and tell them, tell them that he was willing to cooperate. Once again, I had no idea what that meant, none. All I saw in my tunnel vision was that maybe my man will get out, maybe they, they will understand that he's not who they think he is. That was my insanity, my innocence, my, my complete 
lack of political savvy. I had no idea what that entailed. But by then he was 58 years old and he had lived a lifetime of being a political and a, and a countercultural figure and he probably knew. He knew. But he was broken. That's my opinion. So um, he was airlifted out of the prison in a helicopter. They landed him on a bank building in L.A. They mean the federal marshals, the FBI, the DEA, the, 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 the United States Attorney, the California State's Attorney, were all in this big conference room. They took me there, and from that, from that day on, until you got out, they never let me be without being at my door or surrounding me wherever I went. So they took me hostage, and they took him out of prison, and they took him to this conference room, and they asked him what he could give them. Basically, what he told them that he could give them was me. You will dress up this little girl sexy. You will plant microphones on her. And you will send her up. Send her up. Send her out as a guided missile. And we will have her bust people. Counterculture lawyers. Dope dealers. And every time she does one of these Matahari feats, I'll get this time in prison. So he gave me to the lions, threw me to the lions, and there starts an episode that I regret. I regret deeply. But I also have acquired great compassion for myself. Um, I know what it is to be insane. I was insane. I had become insane. I was an insane alcoholic. And I played that role as well as I could. Because by then, I had nothing left. The, the counterculture people had never accepted me. For them, I was the imposter. Rosemary Leary was the wife. I was the European imposter. They had never really, except for Ken Kesey, given me any any shelter or um, or help. Uh, my family had abandoned me. The society I came from had abandoned me. I had nothing but this man. I could not reach physically. Could not reach him. I had nothing but that. So. I played not only reference to what was going on with Matahari, I only had that point of reference. I didn't know what the hell was going on, you know. And it was stand by your man and serve your man. And, uh, and also, I'm sure, a great part of arrogance that, you know, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do it. And, um, you know, the only tunnel I could see was get Timothy Leary out of prison. 
So, yeah. Yeah, whatever it is, I did it. I did it. Um, but I did it because I had no choice. None whatsoever. Uh, I was... I was perhaps even more in prison than he was. Because I was in the prison of, of my own unknowledge, unknowing. Wow. <clears throat> well, Joanne, I'd really kind of like to ask you to fast forward with me right now and, and to tell me... Um, and refer back to anything you want, but I'd, I'd really like to know who you are today and how you've come to be this even the most amazing woman, one of the most amazing women I know, and how you how you survived this, how you how you took this in to make yourself stronger and more open and more vulnerable at the same time. Thank you for asking this question I want to say um, Timothy Leary got out of prison in um, April 1976 I think I've been seven I have a good memory he got out of prison and uh we were only together for about five months after that. And um, he chose to tell people that I made him do it. And um, his allies from the past. And like this woman asked me the other night, how did he succeed in doing that? And that's something I want to stress very very strongly here and that is that a lot of the a lot of time myth 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 is stronger than reality the mythological story endures the personal story doesn't really make it and some people are myths in their own lifetime and Timothy Leary is one of these people. And the people around him preferred to keep the mythology alive and to ignore a young woman with her whole life ahead of them. Um, they preferred to keep the mythology alive than to know what really, really happened. I think that what really happened is extremely poignant and, ex in a sense, extremely beautiful and important. I mean, do you know, do we know how many people in families were turned against each other? The brother arrested, the other brother made, asked to testify against his friend or his brother his family. This bargain happens all the time. And families are broken, friendships broken, because the prison system is so horrid and horrible. And the prison the prison convictions for drugs are so horrible that many people break. 
Many people break. How could you not be broken by a machine that cruel? And I'm here to tell you, that cruel, that dehumanizing. So in a sense, I want people to know Timothy Leary's story because I want people to know that there are people rotting in prison today and those who are not rotting in prison because they turned against their allies and who don't have a life because they're not mythological figures. They don't have a life. They don't have a family. They don't have friends. They're in fear of their life constantly because so they could escape that crushing machine of justice. They have done what Timothy Leary did. It's, it's not right. It's terrible. And um, so anyway, Timothy Leary managed to put his his mythological life back together. Um, to tell you the truth, I mean, I've said enough about how grateful I am to Timothy Leary for coming forth and um, I'm passionately told about why I admire him and thank him. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, uh, I hope that now you have a little better idea of some of the events surrounding the capture and imprisonment of Dr. Leary, who actually may be the only person of the 20th century to uh, have uh, fully lived a life that Joseph Campbell would call a hero's journey. But uh, as you've heard, uh, even our heroes have feet of clay. Thinking back to the interview with Joanna that we just heard, do uh, you remember where uh, she was describing her arrival in the United States, which uh, coincided with a big demonstration in Washington, D.C.? And she said that for the first time, she felt that she was part of a generation on the move to really change everything. Well, uh, when I heard her say that, and since I am more or less also a part of that generation, even though I'm a few years older... My first uh, cynical reaction was, yeah, and so then how did we blow it? Because things are even worse now than they were back then. But uh, after giving that thought a little time to roam around and gather up a few other thoughts, I want to say that while I still feel that we haven't even come close to changing the world like we thought we could, nonetheless, uh, the young people of the 60s and their protests actually did force some uh, considerable changes to be made. You know, unless you grew up in the 1940s and 1950s, it's uh, very hard to imagine how screwed down life was back then when Joanna first came to the United States. Now, I'm talking about pre-Elvis, pre-Beatles, pre-rock and roll America. And while today I see us living in a militarized, locked-down fascist nation... The difference back then was that the screwheads in charge didn't have to resort to highly militarized police forces and surveillance cameras everywhere. Back then, people self-policed and uh, generally kept their emotions and opinions to themselves. You know, we, we just silently kept ourselves in our own mental prisons. So, uh, what things have changed for the better since then? Well... The young people who came of age during the 60s uh, helped to bring about an end to the military draft, which is a really big deal that's almost impossible to explain today. You know, my entire life was shaped by that horrible threat hanging over my head as I grew up. 
As a child, even you know, grade school, high school, we thought about the draft, talked about the draft. You just have no idea how much damage the draft did to young people back then, and myself included. Besides ending the draft, uh, forced segregation was brought out into the open and is now gradually sliding away, uh, although there's uh, still far too much discrimination taking place. Uh, at least it's no longer as well protected by the law. Then there's the fact that the student demonstrations in the 60s were also largely responsible for ending the American war in Vietnam. And uh, need I point out that the American war on Afghanistan has now lasted longer than our war on Vietnam. So those are a few of the big things that were accomplished. But to me, the biggest accomplishments of the generation of young people Joanna spoke about is what we helped to invent. Two things that really did change everything. And I mean everything. I'm sure that you already know what I'm talking about. Rock and roll and the internet. Granted, it was the next generation of tech heads who did the heavy lifting and building the net. But it was the 60s generation who approved the budgets and bought into the ideas that have led to the highly interconnected world that we live in today. And as for what rock and roll did for the world, well, I'll leave those thoughts to you, but... From where I sit, that was actually the beginning of a huge change in global consciousness. So uh, that now ends my little rant, uh, mainly to myself, of course, <laughs> that yes, uh, we did set out to change things, and while we failed miserably on the political front, on the social and cultural side of things, uh, well, the world since the 1950s has changed, uh, changed utterly, as the poets say. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>